that consistently says God requires it from those who want to become his disciples, who want to be Christians. And so for the, the majority of our time this morning, I want to focus on the emphasis that the Holy Spirit puts on to baptism all the way throughout the New Testament. And there are going to be more things that we could say, but here's just a, a, a brief list of things that we can that we can hopefully add to a repertoire of passages, a repertoire of arguments to use when we are trying to defend baptism and defend this doctrine that we find in the Scriptures. Well, first of all, obviously, it is commanded. Very simply, God commands it from everyone who wants to be a disciple. That's what we find in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. If you want to become a Christ's disciple, you want to become a Christian, he says that you need to be baptized into his name, baptized by his authority. Over in John chapter 3 again, we're already there, but in John chapter 3 and verse 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, <clears throat> Nicodemus who was a teacher of Israel, someone who had good knowledge on, on the scriptures already, he, and he seems to be authentic and honest and sincere when coming to Jesus, questioning him, and he even admits that no one can do these things ex unless God is with him. Picking up in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Now how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus starts by saying, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you want to be my disciple, my servant, then you are going to have to be born again. And then he gets more specific in verse 5 saying, you need to be born with water and the Spirit. And so already, so quickly, early on in the gospel message, what we find is this notion of baptism being important. And, and so from the beginning to the end, it's, it's not really let go. In fact, that's the next point that I want to make. Not only does God command it, but it was emphasized both in preparation and emphasized in commemoration of Jesus and specifically of the cross. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, we were looking in Mark chapter 1 earlier this morning at uh, the, the beginning of, of the ministry of Jesus and before that briefly the ministry of John. And what was John doing? He was baptizing people. He was preparing the way of the Lord, as Malachi would, would prophesy about. That one with the spirit of Elijah that would come and prepare, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, in Acts chapter 19, uh, it, Paul asks a question to a few people that thought they were Christians. They thought that they were followers of Christ. And it's an interesting conversation. Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus in verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in what? In the name of the Lord Jesus. And so I think sometimes when people come to a passage like this, they tend to think, oh, well then, so there was, there was really no importance when it came to John's baptism. No, there was. It was preparing everyone for what was coming. And even John himself says that. I'm not the Messiah, but the one that is coming, he's the spotless lamb. He is the lamb that's going to take away every sin. He is the lamb that is going to bring salvation to his people. And so even John himself recognizes that I, I'm not it. This is not the culmination of the matter. But what is he doing? He's preparing. 
And he's foreshadowing what is to come in Jesus. Specifically, it's pointing forward to what comes at the cross. In Romans chapter 6, after everything's said and done, Romans chapter 6. So we have John being the one who is preparing the way of the Lord and John preparing the people for the baptism that Jesus is going to bring. Romans chapter 6, after everything is said, after Jesus has been uh, put to death, put on the cross, risen from death, and ascended back into heaven, Paul starts talking to people, Christians, about what that baptism was supposed to mean in their lives. In Romans 6 and verse 3 he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, why, why does this matter? Because even before Jesus gets to the cross, baptism was already brought into the picture. And what, he, what the Holy Spirit is trying to emphasize is something else is coming and something more final is coming with regards to this baptism. It's not just going to be John's which was incomplete. It wasn't perfect but it is coming to the perfect which is Jesus. And so Paul points backward to remind them of what their baptism was supposed to mean and he ultimately points back to that death on the cross. Now I said that we weren't going to get so much into the necessity and meaning of baptism this morning. <laughs> we're really focusing on how, how to defend it but that doesn't mean we're not going to hit on its meaning. And here we see very heavily what the meaning is supposed to, is what meaning we are supposed to take from this, and what it's supposed to mean to us. Now, what does this have to do with me? When we look at how it foreshadowed and commemorated the cross, if the New Testament so heavily leans on baptism, is it wise or foolish to just disregard it? Is it wise or is it foolish to say, you know? It, it, we can just agree to disagree. It doesn't really matter how we view this. We can, we can disagree on its importance in the life of a Christian. A lot of times that's what people say. It really just doesn't matter that much. You seem to be in total disagreement with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to take His side over yours. And frankly, I've said that to people before. The, the Holy Spirit is very, very plain and clear. How can I come in and start kind of pressing against that and saying the exact opposite of what God has on a matter such as baptism? Well, not only that, but if I wasn't baptized in view of the cross, but something else, can I really say that I've received the baptism of Christ? And we'll talk about some arguments that people give uh, all throughout this kind of discussion. But ultimately, the people in Acts chapter 19, they had not been baptized into Christ yet. They had John's baptism, which was important. It's, it's, they still did something right. They were heading in the right direction. But if they had stayed there, could they have said that I have been baptized by the authority in the name of Christ? No, they couldn't. And in the same way, sometimes people have to come to the realization that I haven't, I've been baptized, but not for the right reason. Not in Christ's name. And maybe Acts chapter 19 is a passage that we need to focus on a little bit more when it comes to those kinds of situations. So we have the fact that God commands it. It is not only pointing forward to the cross, it's pointing backwards to the cross. It's something that never really leaves the, the life of a Christian and those who want to be converted. But one of the main things that I want to focus on is that it is inextricably tied to salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 3 again, 1 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> this is where we started earlier. 
But 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 21, Peter says, corresponding to that, speaking of the, 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 the flood, the illustration of Noah and the flood, he says, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is a passage. I don't know how. I just simply don't know how anyone can look at that and try to say, baptism doesn't save you. <laughs> what are you thinking? What are you reading? Because you're not reading the same book I am. Peter says, corresponding to this, baptism now saves you. And so we can't, no one can look at that and honestly, logically say, that's, that the Holy Spirit doesn't mean what he said. No, I think he did. I, I, th I really think he meant it. So baptism from the very outset is, is directly tied to our salvation. It's directly tied to the point of conversion. And that's important to note. But the rest of these points are really going to be tied to, to, to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. That plain statement that baptism is that moment that we are saved. <clears throat> and one of the reasons I say that is because it is unquestioned as to whether Christians are baptized or not. Whenever, you, whenever someone is writing to Christians in the New Testament, you read through these epistles and these letters that were written to churches. Every time they talk to Christians, it's not like... It's not like they have to say oh, uh, constantly like in Acts chapter 19, but, but did you not receive that one baptism as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4? Did you not receive that one baptism of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ by the authority of Jesus Christ? It's just assumed. Now in Romans chapter 6 you might think, but, but he is kind of bringing that up again. And, and I don't really think he is. Everyone already there was baptized in the name of Christ. They just did not realize how impactful and profound that was supposed to be in their lives. And so he has to go through the meaning again. And he has to emphasize the meaning. But time and time again, it's just assumed that those who are Christians are those who have been baptized. Over in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. <coughs> Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. And again, there's more that we could get into with all of these passages. But remember what our main goal is this morning. It is to make sure that we have a strong defense as we uh, argue for that faith that is within us. The, the, the faith that we have in Christ which is our hope of glory. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. Beginning in verse 26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so, verse 27, again, makes it very clear. But did you catch what he said in verse 26? Faith is a big thing, I think, for good reasons. Not just for uh, the 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 church, but also in the denominational world abroad. Faith is a buzzword, and it's a word that we all cling to, and for, again, for good reason. Now, sometimes people take it too far, but what does he say in verse 27, if we have been clothed in Christ? How are we sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus? We have to be baptized. We have to be clothed in Him, and how we are clothed in Him is through baptism. At least, that's the language that Paul uses. And so, if we really want to have true faith, can we have true faith and not go forward, not go through this commandment of baptism. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, Colossians chapter 3, again, I, I say it's just assumed throughout the scriptures that Christians are baptized. Colossians chapter 3 in verse 1, notice how Paul speaks here. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What do you think he's referring to when he says, if you have been raised? He's saying, if you are a Christian, 
Think about these things. If you have this hope, think about these things. How do you have this hope? You, you've been raised up with him. As we read in Romans chapter 6, in the likeness of his death and resurrection. And so that's important. And we can't overlook that. The question is not throughout the, the New Testament, are you a Christian who's been baptized yet? The question is, are you a Christian? And really, that just goes hand in hand with baptism. And so, and again, we'll come back to an argument that people make along those lines of, of you know, being saved and then being baptized. But I think that this is a helpful point because we can say with confidence the when of how, when someone receives salvation. A lot of times when you ask people in the religious world around us, in the denominational world around us, they can't answer that question. And you ask them point blank, okay, yes, we can have salvation through Christ, but when do we attain that salvation? When can we actually say, I am a Christian? And it's really just a matter of, I, I can't really say. We can. And, and frankly, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's cheating. And I don't think that that's a, a, a cheap shot to say, we can. Because God is so clear about this. If you have been raised with Christ in baptism, then think on these things. If you've been raised with Christ, then you can say that you have that salvation. Now, it's not indicating that you can't lose that salvation, that you can't go away from God, but it is saying that we know the exact moment of conversion, and that's important, and I think that's powerful. Well, not only that, but it is how we contact the cleansing blood of Christ. Over in Acts chapter 2, in verse 38, another very familiar passage, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, as Peter is and the apostles are asked, what must we do to be saved? After Peter has preached this gospel message of judgment, and he, they know where they fall in that judgment. They know where they fall when standing before God in judgment. So they ask, what shall we do? In verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Over in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, as Paul's recounting his uh, conversion, he speaks about, a man named Ananias who was a disciple of God and God sent this man to him to tell him what he must do. And what does he say in verse 16? Why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. Isn't it interesting that baptism and the cleansing of sins, baptism and the washing away from Christ's blood, cleansing blood, is connected. And so all of this goes back to what we were talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3. Baptism is inextricably tied to and linked to uh, our salvation and the when we are actually converted. Now, with, with that being said, how else do we receive this washing? If it's not through baptism, how else do we come in contact with that blood? And in fact, I would ask that question when it comes to his death and his burial and his resurrection. In Colossians chapter 2 in verse 12, Colossians chapter 2 in verse 12, Paul says, Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so once more, you have that notion of being buried in baptism. But I like how... This is right before you get to verse 1 of chapter 3 where he says, Okay, so if you have been raised from what from that burial, from uh, what he was talking about in verses 12 through 14, 
buried with him in baptism. You were also raised up with him. Now, I think everyone would agree that it is necessary to come into contact with that death, burial, and resurrection to be saved. And, I, and, and let, me just, let me just pause for a moment. When we're trying to make this argument, we have to ask these questions very pointedly and in a proper sequence. We have to first agree that this is important. Yes, this is important. We have to be united with that death. We have to be united with that resurrection. Of course we have to. Okay, the question remains, how do we come in contact with it then? If it's so important to receive salvation, when is the moment? How, do we, how are we united with him in his death and resurrection? And here we have it, through baptism. And so do you, do you, do you, are you starting to see a pattern here? Are you starting to see the strength of the evidence that we have here? That's what I want. I want to be confident and I want to feel convicted that we have strong biblical evidence, a strong standard here to be so emphatic about this. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is and in many different ways. And again, there's even more that we could say, but there's just a, a brief list of some of the main things that I think we need to focus on when it comes to how do we defend baptism. Now, with all of that being said, could you defend against some of these arguments that, that you hear from time to time? And I think that these are common statements that people use. One of which, one of the first that I think of is something that we kind of referred to earlier this morning. Well, you know, I, I was baptized, but after I was saved. I, when you read the scriptures like we just did, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, does he say, okay, now... You are saved, then baptism. You know, he says, baptism now saves you. Acts chapter 19 and verse 4. Did John say, oh, you're baptized with the baptism of John? You don't have to worry about that. You just keep going the way you're going. No, he says, you need to be baptized in the name of the Son, in, in the name of Jesus by his authority. And they are, as we already read in, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 5. And so time and time again, what you see is someone waiting for salvation, someone waiting to find the words of eternal life, and what happens? Paul, when Ananias comes, what do I need to do? You need to rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. The, the, the uh, Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, what must I do? They talk about faith. They talk about what that means in their lives. And that very hour, he and his entire household were baptized. Acts chapter 16, verses 31 and onward. There's just a, that's one we didn't get, get to get to this morning, but there's another reference that you can write down if, you, if you're trying to write down a list. But over and over again, what we see is one is not saved until they have fully obeyed Christ. One is not saved until they have come into contact with that resurrection. And how do we do that? The only evidence we have is through baptism. And so one can't say that I was baptized after I was saved. They, they can't say, well, I, I became a Christian at five years old, and then I was baptized ten years later. That's a, there's a red flag there. Because you weren't baptized in the baptism of Christ, in His name. I like the way, uh, I've, heard this from, I've heard this from Danny McKibben, and I've heard this from J.R. Bronger from, uh, a few times, but they talk about uh, Ma Ma uh, Mark, I almost said Matthew, Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. It's like a math equation. And you take that. You have belief and baptism equals saved. But what do people do? That's the biblical standard. But people come in and they say, okay, 
It's not actually belief plus baptism equals saved. It's belief equals saved and then baptism way after, in parentheses. It's belief equals saved, then you're baptized. No, 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 no. It's he that believes and is baptized will be saved. And he who does not is condemned. And so I think that's a helpful way of looking at it like a math equation because it really is. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. But man comes in and complicates things. So let's not complicate it. Let's just look at what the scriptures have to say. Well, not only that, but sometimes people will come up and say, well, if, if baptism is necessary for salvation, what you're doing then, you're taking away the need for something like faith. And people have said that to me before. And the way I like to respond is, Who, who's doing that? Who's taking away the need for faith? I didn't say that. When, when does that even come up in the conversation? In fact, I think faith has a lot to do with our baptism. Didn't we just read that in Galatians chapter 3 and verses 26 through 27? He says that you have to clothe yourself in Christ through baptism. But faith has a lot to do with that in verse 26, doesn't it? How do we have faith? How are we faithful sons through Christ? We have to be baptized. Verse 27. There's a sequence there. And so I'm not the one taking away the need for faith. I think all of these things, faith, repentance, confession, goes in tandem with baptism. In fact... What about repentance or confession? Peter says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 that, that they need to repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins, for the remission of sins. I'm not coming in and saying, you don't actually have to repent. You just have to be baptized. That would be false teaching. That would be a false gospel. What I'm saying is you've got to do it all, which is actually a little bit harder. I'm saying you've got to be a little bit more strict. What am I saying? You gotta have a conservative view of the scriptures. You can't just come in and tear everything out of its context. And what's interesting, if, if you follow that line of thinking, I, I, we need to turn the question around. When people come up and say something like this, that you're just you're eliminating the need for all of these things, I'm actually not. All of these things go together. We need to turn the question around and say, so so you're saying that faith eliminates the need for baptism. You're saying that confession eliminates the need for baptism. I said, well, no, I'm not saying that. Well, actually, that is the conclusion of what you're trying to say here. You may not like that that's a conclusion, but that's the result, regardless. And we need, to, we need to learn how to turn those kinds of questions, those kind of arguments around. Because, uh, yes, we need to be careful that while we emphasize baptism, we're not de-emphasizing other necessary acts of salvation, like confession, like repentance, like faith. But we also need to make sure that we don't take the emphasis that the Scriptures put on baptism off. And that's what the world tries to do. They want to keep faith and they want to keep confession. It, what's interesting is I don't think that they talk so much about repentance as those other two things, but they definitely are going to keep baptism off because that's not necessary. No, no, no. I say what God has said is necessary, period. And so let's not come in and try to change that. And so with that repertoire of, of passages, that repertoire of, of, of Scripture that we have, we can come to these questions and we can answer them point blank and with strong uh, convicted confidence. Another argument someone might say is, well, what about, what about the thief on the cross? And these are all just random arguments that you can think of, but I think, again, some common ones. But someone says, well, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. My question is, was he a Christian? Was he a part of the church? No. The, the church has not been established yet. The church isn't established until Acts chapter 2, but that's not even the point. First of all, I, I love it when people say things like this because he was in the presence of God, literally. And just like Jesus could heal the paralytic man, just like Jesus could forgive the paralytic man, I'm not going to question that. He's God. He has the authority to do that. 
But when you think about the timing of this, the thief on the cross, the church had not been established yet. Let's not get distracted and leave the main point. We're asking, we're not asking how people were saved before Christ established the church. What are we asking? We're asking now after it has been established in the days that we're living in, how do we join that church? And what Christ has said is, you need to be baptized. And so don't get distracted. Think, how are we invited? How are we accepted into the church? So we, we, need to, we need to look at these passages and really commit them to our memory, really commit them to our hearts so that way we can answer with that level of confidence and not get distracted. When we know these by heart, I think it eliminates the, the temptation to allow people to take our minds away from the question at hand. And so when we have those clear passages like Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Acts chapter 26, verse 16, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, they're the ones that have the burden of proof, not us. We've already given it. Well, finally, one of the most common statements I think people can make is, what about the person who dies on the way to be baptized? This is a very popular one. And I'll just say, if I think that you can be honest and ask this question. In fact, I think a lot of teenage, a lot of young people do that from time to time. And, and so I think that there is a way to ask this in an honest way. The problem is, I think most of the time, it's just not honest. It's very dishonest. It's a way to get around the obvious conclusion that Scripture comes to. And so, what about the person who dies on their way to be baptized? I'll just say, it's not really a point of conflict. For me, it really isn't. It doesn't bother me, and it doesn't, it doesn't hurt my faith at all. And why is that? Because this doesn't change the standard. All it does is present a possible, not even conceding, but it presents a possible exception. Whether it is a real exception or not, what do we base our standard on? Not exceptions. Scientifically, the way we live our lives day to day, we don't base it on, well, what could happen? We base it on, what do we know? What is the standard? I know that when I walk out of the building this morning and the sunlight touches my skin, I'm not going to immediately die. I'm not going to live that way. Why? Because I know the standard. We can walk outside. We can be exposed to the sunlight and, and, and live perfectly fine. But if I, knew, if I knew that I was going to die as soon as I walked outside, I would live a little bit differently, wouldn't I? But, but that's the problem. We know what the truth is. We know what the standard is. And so with baptism, we need to be just, we need to be just as sure and not allow people to strain that confidence. And I would just say, when people ask this kind of a question, I think this paints a caricature of God that depicts him as a being who's constantly pulling the rug out from under people. And frankly, that's not the God I serve. That doesn't look like him and that doesn't sound like him. You read all of the stories throughout Scripture. You just need to ask, what do you see in Scripture? Not a God who's just waiting for people to mess up and waiting to just pull the rug out from under them, but constantly a God who is who's right there hoping that people will make the right choice. I'll tell you, I've never seen, personally, I've never seen this story of someone going to be baptized and getting in a car crash and dying before they could. You know what I have seen? I've seen Cornelius, who has a need for salvation and is searching for it diligently. When Cornelius needs that salvation, what does God do? Does he strike him down? No. He sends Peter, doesn't he? When the Ethiopian eunuch is seeking that suffering servant that he's reading about in Isaiah chapter 53, does God strike him down? No. What does he do? He sends Philip, the evangelist. 
And he teaches him the gospel. When Saul sits in blindness and sorrowful conviction, does God strike him? No. He sits there and finally a man named Ananias comes and does not leave him in the darkness, but teaches him how to be brought back into the light, into Christ's life. So I haven't seen this situation where someone is, is trying to do right and God just takes their opportunity away. What we see time and time again is God giving people the opportunity. Every opportunity that they can have. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. God is not slow to fulfill his promise, but his desire is that all will escape the judgment. All will be saved. That is the God that we serve. And so for all of the arguments, all of the things that people try to say to, to make our faith wane in this doctrine, all the arguments that people give to try and take away from the strong foundation we have, none of it, none of it has any bearing. None of it is proof that should hurt or hinder our faith. We know what God has given to us. We know that God has given us a clear path forward in how to be saved. Have you heard the word? Are you willing to hear it? Are you willing to put faith in that word, the gospel? Willing to repent, as Peter talks about in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. That means doing away with everything God has said you can't have in your life anymore. Willing to make a confession based on that belief and be baptized into his death so that you can rise in newness of life. I hope that this has been a very clear case of why that is needed. If you, if you still feel like there's more that needs to be said, please come after the service and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you more about that. The question is, are we willing to hear what God has to say? Because if we are, then there will be no more doubts. If we're willing to hear and willing to accept it, we can have salvation this very morning. So if you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.